I got the flu right after I came back from a tour. You know, we had done this um, West Coast run and we were being, this was in January, we were being so careful with, you know, all masking and social distancing and we were vaxxed and boosted and washing our hands all the time and, and you know, trying to get everybody in the facilities to do the same thing and, and, and the fans and everything. We were so careful. And then I got the flu on the plane ride home. It's funny that we live in a moment where the flu is like best case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> you start getting all the symptoms and everything, and then immediately your mind goes to the thing. Exactly. I raced off to get a COVID test and it was negative, but they said, let's give you a flu test. And sure enough, that's what I had. So, but, uh, you know, I'm fine. It was just the flu. It sucked for a while, but, uh, here I am. So I've now been on a plane twice this year, which, which just makes it twice throughout the entire pandemic. And I, I managed to get sick both times. And I wonder <laughs> if my sister told me the same thing. She flew a week or two ago and, you know, she's like, I had my mask on the entire time and I still managed to get sick. And I just wonder if all of the immunities that we've been building up our entire lives are just completely out the window now because we spent two <laughs> years being away from everybody. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, that's an interesting take on it. I don't, I, I hope that's not true, but yeah, we are sort of all canaries in the coal mine now and we're kind of emerging and rubbing our eyes and being, how do I act again? What do I do? And so I think, I think we're vulnerable in a lot of ways right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I went to a wedding last week and I, I had that experience of all of my regular social anxiety that I have was compounded by the fact that I hadn't actually like been in front of human beings for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, we don't know how to act anymore. And it's, I'm sort of seeing it in, even in audiences at our shows, you know, it's like we've, we've tried to do as much live performing as we could throughout this whole time, you know, with varying success because of, you know, you book a date several months in advance. And then by the time you get there, there's another surge or, you know, the theater is closed down or whatever. So you try to do your best, but every time we've come out, it seems to take the audience to about a quarter of the way through the show to remember about like, Oh, we applaud and Oh, we respond to the artist and Oh, we laugh if something's funny. And it's like, they just (laughs) kind of forgot how to act, but then it all comes back. Definitely. There was there was a moment the first few times, like just right at the beginning of the show, where I'm, you know, the, my my internal mental voice is like, "This is a ridiculous thing for a grown person to do for a living." And what are you doing standing up here and you know in these uncomfortable shoes and you know with all this makeup on and this is crazy. But you know, then you get into the second or third song and you really start to hit your stride and you're like, "Oh yeah, I I understand. I remember why." why I do this with my life. I'm not trying to give you career advice, but I think that you've been doing this long enough that you've earned comfortable shoes on stage. <laughs> yeah. I thought I might go like the whole, um, <clears throat> the whole uh, Chris Robinson vibe with like the bare feet and the nice plushy oriental carpet and stuff. But that's just another thing to carry around is the carpet. So it's a trade-off, right? Cause you're packing less shoes, but more carpet. So that's true. <laughs> The balance out in that way. Yeah. You've played extensively with the dead. I feel like there's there's this whole other sort of part of you that you can kind of tap into going barefoot. 
Yeah, I mean, I can lay claim to a bit of that hippie chick stuff. So for sure, maybe I'll maybe I'll do that this weekend. We have a show um, on Long Island, and maybe I'll do that this weekend. Go barefoot. And I say this as a native Californian who now lives in New York, but you, I feel like that's kind of your vibe. I feel like you could very comfortably be a San Francisco or Los Angeles person. I mean, I do love the West Coast, but I was born in Kentucky, so uh, born and raised there. So I think I have a little bit of that you know, maybe just a touch of that hillbilly, you know, crossed with the hippie in there as well. So, uh, I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, there's Bohemia everywhere. So I, I would feel at home in a lot of different places. Yeah. I've been in New York for about 17 years at this point. I mean, obviously it's not, it's not for everyone and it is, it's, mm-hmm. it famously can be a difficult place to live. Yeah. Is this where you always wanted to be? I mean, I didn't grow up dreaming about moving to New York City. I just, I came to New York because that was where the school was that I wanted to go to. I wanted to go to NYU and study in the film department there. So New York was almost like an afterthought. But then once I got here, you know, New York is never going to be anybody's afterthought. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it, it takes, it takes the whole, takes all you've got to kind of, navigate it, especially coming from a place that I came from um, and being thrown into it. But it's also really exciting. And especially for someone who wants to be an artist, it's just, there's no end to the inspiration that you can find even just walking down the street. You know, there's so much street life and, and uh, you know, so many different kinds of people, different ethnicities and different fashion sensibilities and different sexual preferences. And, you know, it's all just out there in the street. So it's an endlessly inspiring place. If not all of us, most of us had a sense growing up of like wanting to, to escape or feeling like there was, there was something out there, you know, and I, I'm guessing that must've been part of the appeal of at least moving to a big city, whether it was New York or somewhere else. Well, I think I, you know, I think I could have been fine to stay in Kentucky where I was. Cause you know, at that point, Louisville was, you know, that was a fairly big city compared to the little town that I grew up in. But to me, it was just about, am I going to be able to do what I want to do here? And, um, you know, the, the opportunity to go to New York and to study film didn't exist. You know, for me, that was the only place that I wanted to go. So, uh, you know, so it was about what I was going to do as opposed to feeling that I needed to escape. But, you know, that being said, once I got a taste of New York, it was, it was very addictive and I, I, you know, I've not thought about moving back to Kentucky. Let's put it that way. I mean, I love it there and I have family there and I love to go and visit, but I think, you know, New York is kind of it for me. When did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker? I had been, when I first went to college, I went to the university of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. And I started taking some theater classes and I got really into directing and I directed, uh, some scenes and classes. And I directed a play in the, like the small black box theater. And I just, I really liked it. And, but then I thought to myself, you know, this is really cool, but you know, what percentage of the population goes to the theater in America? You know, it's a very small percentage. What percentage of the population goes to see movies? Pretty much everybody. (laughs) So I thought, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in doing some stuff that, you know, would get seen in this wider, on this wider way. And plus I always loved movies and I, and I loved 
you know, the sort of the quirky indie foreign films, anything that I could find. We had this midnight movie at this theater called the Vogue Theater uh, in Kentucky where I grew up. And it would play, you know, sort of things like Bette Midler and the Divine Miss M or, uh, you know, concert movies or, you know, sort of things like Harold and Maude. And it just like, that was really interesting to me, the weirder, the better. So, so I was really drawn to kind of the European directors and European cinema. And and as much as I could learn about it, I I wanted to know more about it. It's so funny, you know, when we're at that point in our lives and we're trying to figure out what is a reasonable career path to think like, oh yeah, film, (laughs) I could be a film director. That's a that's a, that's a relatively easy thing that I could do for a living. Well, I guess ignorance is a real, you know, boon in those situations. <laughs> it can be a motivator for sure. Yeah. When you don't know how hard it is to do something, you, you just plow ahead and do it. And then you get, you're in the middle of it and you're like, why did I think I could do this? But then by the end, you're like, I'm glad that I didn't know all that stuff because I would never have started. Did you progress to that point in your film education? Where I thought it was too hard? No, it's, uh, it really was that music started taking over when I was, when I still hadn't graduated from film school. I still never have. I'm, I'm a college dropout, sad to say. But I, was, I started to get so involved in the music scene and started to feel like there was something so compelling about it that I... I would regret it if I didn't try to see, you know, what I could do in this arena. You know, I just, I fell so hard for it. And, you know, filmmaking is, it's really exciting and it's great. But from the first idea that you have to the finished product, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of people on a team. It takes a lot of equipment. Whereas if you're singing, you know, it, music, one thing, but, but singing in particular, it's very, it's much more immediate and it comes out of your body and you can throw your entire self into it, not just your intellect, but also your heart and your soul and your physicality. So I think there was something about that that really kind of captured my imagination. And I thought, well, you know, film school will always be there if I want to finish it but this is happening now. And I think I'd regret it if I don't, if I don't see where I can take it. It's really good insight. And I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily have it when they're younger that, you know, and, and not that you can't start a new career later in life, but that, that this is sort of the moment where I have the energy to be able to do this, that, that I can like wait tables or do whatever I need to do during the day. And then like commit myself to this thing at night, because like, I can still work eight hours and then have the energy to invest myself into that. But it's for most people, that's a pretty small window. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the key is that you really commit to it. You know, there's, there are people who, you know, think will really want to do something, but are kind of on the fence about it and are kind of holding back because, oh, I have to wait until this thing happens in my life, or I have to wait until I'm ready, or I have to wait until I get this or that, you know, degree or this or that stamp of approval from somebody, you know, you, you need to give yourself permission to commit to it. And I think that's really, really an important part of it. In a way you have to be open to the possibility that it, that it might not work out because it is like, sure that you will fail. Yeah. At that point, did it feel any more or less realistic than a career in film? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I went for some real doozies, didn't I? Um, I, you know, I, I guess it felt just as realistic because I could sort of see that it was 
you know, that there was something real going on there, you know, even though I would, might've just been doing, you know, playing in some tiny little bar and there was a hundred people in the audience, it still was real. And, and it was, you know, it, it, the music was happening and, and I was feeling it and the audience was feeling it and there was some real communication happening. So, so I guess to me, that was, you know, sort of proof that at least, at least it's worth taking the next step. You know, you, it just, I wasn't thinking about, you know, way off into the distance and, you know, whatever. I was just thinking what, what can happen next with this. And because it seemed to be real to me from the very beginning, that was not so hard to imagine. When you're describing the immediacy, I mean, obviously the process of making an album is something that can take a long time, but the visceral feeling that you get, I, I'm guessing standing on stage and singing is probably even more in line with that live theater experience that you had early on and that you have an immediate reaction. That's something that you'll probably never really get from making it film. Yeah. And I mean, it's similar to doing a recording. Yeah. It's, it's a, that is a long process and it can be very involved. I happen to really enjoy it. Um, but it also is not without its frustrations, but at the end of it, you have this recording, which is great, but you know, it's not the same as playing music in front of people. That's, there's something really, you know, it can be really magical. It can also be, you know, when you're opening yourself up like that, if you feel like not connecting or I'm, I'm having a bad night and you start to get into your head, it can also be a horrible experience. But thankfully, uh, you know, for the most part, it, I love doing it and, and I still really enjoy it. And I still really find that there's nothing else like it. There's a way in which it's kind of like any job and that there's just going to be some nights that, that you don't necessarily want to be there and that it's, that it's kind of difficult going through the motions. Or just, or just that you think that you suck and you're sucking in front of hundreds of people and, you know, they all paid to see you and, you know, it's, you, I can go down that rabbit hole of, of self-doubt just like anybody. You still have those nights? I mean, yeah, I do. But invariably, you know, this, this happened to me a lot before the pandemic because I would go out and sign autographs after the shows. And even on a night like that, where I've just, I couldn't get out of my head and I felt like, oh, I'd suck and this is terrible. And, and uh, who is that guy in the back leaving and, you know, stuff like that. I would go out and meet the audience afterwards and they would just be like, Oh my God, that was amazing. I can't believe it. This is the best show I've ever seen. Or I can't believe you did this song. And, you know, and just person after person after person would, would tell me that it meant something to them. So even if I wasn't understanding that or catching on to that, or even if I couldn't get out of my own head, it was still worth it for them and it was still valuable to them. So that was a real lesson to me as well. It's very in vogue to talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> I think that is something that everybody experiences just to some degree. I don't know if that's exactly what you're describing, but I wonder, does that go away over time? Does external validation and realizing that like you've been able to build this career that people are really interested in, does it help blunt that? I mean, I think just having done this for so long you understand that you're going to have some nights like that and you don't take it too hard. And, you know, I, I sometimes will make this joke. Like if I feel like I've had a bad night or something, I'll you know come backstage and be like, okay, I'm quitting the business, you know, but it's just, it's just a joke. It's just a way to sort of dispel tension. And, you know, you understand that even if you aren't having a great night, the audience might be having a great night or that person who 
has been waiting for years to see you and this is their first chance or that mom who brought her daughter to see your show, like they may be having a great night. So it's really not about me. And that's, that's something that you kind of start to understand after doing it for decades. Was there ever a point where it didn't feel like a joke where you sort of seriously considered that maybe it's time to go back to film school or maybe this just isn't quite clicking? Well, you know, when that, when I do start to feel like that is when I have to travel a lot and be away from my daughter, that's, that's when I am like seriously questioning this as a life choice. Um, And just, you know, the travel itself, like sometimes we'll have to get up at seven o'clock in the morning after we did a show the night before and drive for six hours and then do a sound check. And then, you know, talk to somebody at a radio station and then do a show and then drive some more. And, you know, it beats you up and I'm not 20 years old anymore. So, so there are definitely times where, um, you know, if I'm just feeling physically like, oh, this is too much, then I start to think, well, maybe you should go home, <laughs> but then we do the show and then it, you know, it's usually it's great. And even if it's not great, then there's something great about it. And, and, you know, so it's, uh, it, it feels worth it. And, you know, I have to say, in particular right now, I think doing live music is, you know, I think it's a very important thing, not just for individuals, you know, me, the band, the audience, um, because we need that for our souls. But also, I think it's a good thing for communities to have a place where people can come together and, you know, nobody has to know what anybody's political party is and nobody knows if the person next to them is this or that, you know, believes in this or that, you know, opinion. And, and, you know, we live in a time when we're so polarized and so divided. It's nice to have a place where people can come and just see each other as human beings, enjoying this, you know, this sort of primal thing of hearing music, hearing live people play live music. So I feel like any live music right now, you know, has a job to do to try to hold us together, you know, in, in a time when we seem to be uh, just coming apart. It's a hard line to walk though, right? Because, you know, you feel that you you need to be in a certain sense political or at least address some of the um, injustices that you see in the world. You know, you, you had that record come out not long ago. Mm-hmm. And, and when that happens, is there sort of a certain expectation that people coming out and listening to your music will kind of generally be in the same ballpark? I mean, yes and no. I, you know, I think I do have fans who probably align more with my political views because, you know, I go on Twitter and I go on Instagram and I talk about things. So, um, and I think anybody who's followed me for a while knows that I have been a longtime supporter of Planned Parenthood and, you know, it's not a big secret, but I also feel like there are people who are, are my fans who are at the opposite end of the, you know, the political spectrum with their beliefs. But, you know, I don't think that that means that they shouldn't come to my show. You know, I mean, I think it, as I say, I feel like there's so many things that are trying to drive a wedge in, you know, between us. And I, you know, and and there's good reasons that we disagree with each other and people feel passionately about it. It's not that I don't understand that, but I do think that it starts to feel like it doesn't benefit us to 
only focus on that and not to try to focus on the things that we have in common. I got the sense hearing you talk about that record specifically that it's worth potentially maybe alienating some of your listenership because mm-hmm. it's that important to get these ideas down on record. Yeah, I'm, but I think I've always done that. You know, I've always been very open about the things that I support and the things that I don't support. And anybody who decided, you know, anybody who's decided that, you know, that me being pro-choice and, and uh, you know, working to raise money for Planned Parenthood doesn't jive with their values, they're already gone. You know, <laughs> they've been gone for years. So it's, it's, this is not a new thing for me. I mean, do you still get some degree of pushback? I mean, a little bit, you know, I, I, I try not to read the comments in, uh, you know, in my social media stuff, because, you know, what's, what's the upside of that, you know? So uh, I, I just, probably there's a lot more people who are, you know, mad at me or saying nasty things about me, uh, you know, online that I'm just not hearing, but I'm not letting that change what I do. And I'm not letting that impact my day-to-day life. This is a conversation that I had with, with a lot of people is that it's when the other side of the political argument is that people shouldn't have basic human rights, that it's not really an argument, right? No. And, uh, you know, you also, I mean, I think you have to look at what social media has done in the last handful of years to contribute to this polarization that we're experiencing and also, you know, look at the history of that, look at where that comes from. Who are the people who benefit from us being so polarized and, you know, who are the people who benefit by gaining power uh, from riling up their base with this or that, you know, ridiculous, insane, you know, conspiracy theory, you know, who benefits from that and who suffers, you know, where this is, this is not something that came about, as some natural flowering of our national debate. You know, this is something that I think has been somewhat orchestrated. It's not like those differences weren't there to begin with, but I think the fact that they have become, that they loom so large in American life right now has very much been orchestrated and it's been orchestrated for other people's profit and for their power. I have to think about that before I spend a lot of time being really incensed at, at somebody because they, you know, because they hold a, a belief that I find despicable. And I'm not talking about just random people on the internet. I'm talking about family members of mine, you know? So it's, I have to try to understand where that comes from before I react just in anger and, and escalate it to some crazy point. I'm from basically around San Francisco and, you know, I live in Queens now and and I feel like that's sort of I, I I basically only live on on these two coasts around mm-hmm. fairly urban areas, and it's given me certain probably prejudices, you know, when it comes to the you know the way people are, particularly like in a place like Kentucky. But I mean, do you feel like the the general politics that you have that you were kind of in, in the minority growing up? I mean, I don't think I was much aware of politics growing up, um, not nearly as much as I am now. But I will say, and definitely, you know, Kentucky is a red state. That's no secret that more people, you know, voted. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the senator. So Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, it's a blazing red state, but it's also not a monolith. There are plenty of people who are, you know, on the left and, uh, you know, and have more liberal political opinions and, uh, and our, you know, social justice warriors and all that. There's plenty of people like that in that state as well. 
so I think, you know, if I, if I did say, decide to move back to Kentucky or something, I don't think I would feel like I was surrounded by people who, you know, were threatened by my point of view. I just, I probably would socialize and see people who more agree with me as most people do these days. You know, was it college? When did you really get in touch with that side of yourself? Yeah, I think it was, it was when I started going to college and just, uh, in particular, the, you know, the feminist causes, uh, and, you know, reproductive freedom and all of that just to me just seemed so, it seemed so obvious that, that it's wrong to force someone to have a baby if they don't want to do that. You know, it's just wrong in all kinds of ways. And, you know, and as a young woman, of course, I felt very much directly that this affected my life too. So, so I think that was the, the issue that really kind of lit a fire under me. And then, you know, once I became a little bit more active, then you start to look around and you start to see, uh, you know, all the rest of the things that, uh, that you, things that aren't really right and, and liberties that are, uh, you know, that are under fire and, and uh, people who are being oppressed and people who need help, you know? So, I mean, I, I think, for me, the, the thing to do in this moment in time is, you know, we're, yes, we're divided. Yes, people don't agree. Yes, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very frightening time. But I still know what I believe to be right. And I know that there are energies that I have that can be put towards trying to make things better for people who need my help. And it's really just that simple. You know, it, you can... You can do whatever any other citizen of this country can do. I I also happen to have a platform. You know, it's not the hugest one, but I have something of a platform where I can make music about the things that I believe in too. So, yes, it's a it's a scary time, but we all us grown-ups, we got a lot of work to do. So, let's get at it, you know. I guess is really all I have to say. You know, you hear all these stories of people. I remember you know, like Dick Cheney having a, a lesbian daughter and all of a sudden, you know, he's like kind of on board with LGBTQ rights. And it's just <laughs> like, just, you know, moving to a, a place like New York and and just being around other people and, you know, getting to know them, mm-hmm. that sort of tends to shift you in that direction. And so there's like so many stories of just like the politicians who were like staunchly anti something else. And then somebody who was directly impacted by that mm-hmm. became a part of their life and their position changed. Well, I mean, I wish, you know, I wish that happened more. Uh, you know, I think that's a rare example. I think it's probably more likely that, that, you know, these days that that politician would be so terrified to change their mind uh, and do so publicly that they would just, you know, pretend that they believe something that they don't or, you know, or sacrifice their family relationship for their political power. I, I find that that happens more often than, you know, than the opposite. I wish that were true. I used to ask people when it came to writing political songs, whether they felt that music could affect change. But I, I think a more appropriate question is, have you witnessed music actually affecting change in the world? That's a really good question. I don't think that a song is going to solve a political problem, but I do think that music can change people and that people are the ones who, you know, make the changes in the world. So I, you know, I feel like, you know, a song like this land is your land by Woody Guthrie, um, you know, 
it, it didn't fix the Dust Bowl, but it also allows everyone to feel that they belong in this country. And that is a bedrock belief that then impacts how people will act and how people will hopefully treat each other. So, um, so I think it's a, it's hard to trace some direct line between, Oh, here's a song lyric and here's the result of that song lyric. I think it's much more mysterious than that. Um, But I do think it, it does have, an impact, you know, not least of which, because if someone is, you know, if some gay kid is living in a family where their, you know, their parents believe that homosexuality is a sin and they're going to send them off to, you know, a, a reconditioning place to try to cure them of being gay or whatever, like a song that allows that kid to be more accepting of themselves and to give that kid courage to, to deal with that situation you know, that's political too. And I think that is the way in which music has that kind of power. I think probably an understated part of it too, is the way that it brings people together. You know, I I often talk to people who in, you know, like middle school or high school felt like they were outcasts and then they were lucky enough to kind of, to, to find their group. Music is kind of the perfect opportunity to do that. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it also allows people to feel less alone. You know, it's if some, if a musician or an artist has written a song that feels like it's explaining exactly the thing that you feel, then that makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel like somebody in the world understands you and, and you're not crazy and you're not a freak. And, and that's a wonderful thing you know that's a wonderful thing it certainly has happened to me that i've heard that in other people's songs and i would hope and you know people have told me that that's something that they got from my songs and i just think it's a wonderful thing was there anything in particular in your formative years that you feel like really sort of flicked on that switch for you you mean the music switch or the political switch the the music switch in terms of actually like really connecting with something in a deep way yeah i mean i I think I always just loved it and felt that it was magic. I can remember being a little, little kid, maybe I was five or six and I was out in the woods and by myself and, and I was building a fort out of, you know, sticks stuff. And and I had brought this little bitty radio shack transistor radio with me. And that song, that Minnie Ripperton song, loving you came on and I sang along to it. And I just had this feeling of just this pure joy, you know? I mean, it just, uh, music has always been really, just has always just gone right to my core. So, you know, and I, and I also was lucky because I got, when I was very young, I got some encouragement and some training. Uh, I was in this school choir. It was a, a madrigal choir and we would sing these old English five and six part harmony madrigal songs. And uh, my teacher, Carolyn Browning was always very encouraging. And she, she really challenged uh, us as a class and also me as an individual. And I think I learned a lot of just, you know, basics about harmony and about, uh, you know, just blending your voice with other voices. And, and uh, you know, that's, I, I still love singing harmony so much. You know? So um, I think that was a moment that, you know, or a time in my life when I really connected with music and, and, 
it was, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. I like that you picked Minnie Riperton and I feel like she just doesn't get for whatever reason the credit she deserves, but it, she's, um, it's almost like listening to Bach for the first time, you know, or like, <laughs> or like good vibrations or something like there's something almost transcendent in her voice. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fantastic singer. And just, uh, you know, the, such a beautiful tone too. Oh my God. What an instrument she had. Amazing. We kind of started the conversation talking about confidence and, 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 and self-doubt, but I've, I've heard your story of that, that, early transition of, you know, going from being a film student to really figuring out that realizing that music was something that you could do. And the story is you standing in front of a crowd and singing a Billie Holiday song and just talk about that strikes me as something that takes an incredible amount of confidence to do in front of a crowd of strangers. <laughs> well, it wasn't a big crowd. <laughs> it was uh, even, even so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that in front of two people. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure. I think, uh, I think I might've been trying to impress the guy that I was with and uh, you know, I, I kind of knew, like, I didn't think of myself as being like a professional grade singer. You know, I just, I knew that I had a nice voice. Um, so I think I was just maybe trying to, you know, impress him or something. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I would tell you that I, that I was scared to do it and that I would for a long time when I, you know, I would go back to these open mic nights and, and even when I started playing my own shows, I was terrified. You know, I, I would be standing up there grabbing onto the mic stand and with my eyes closed and, and, uh, you know, I would be like barfing, you know, in the dressing room a couple hours before, like it was, it was bad. Um, but it just took, it took me a lot of just repeating of the experience to finally be like, okay, no one is going to die. You're not going to die. It's okay. And, uh, you know, and, and just to be able to relax and enjoy it. People talk about authenticity these days. I mean, was it ever, did it ever seem strange or, you know, to kind of, to, to do like a Billie Holiday song or to sort of play like a, a blues song? I mean, I, you know, I think I just loved Billie Holiday and it was a song that I knew the song, God bless the child. And, you know, I don't think there's anything I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like, is there, is there a certain amount of cultural appropriation for a white girl to be singing a Billie Holiday song or to be singing, you know, in a blues bar or whatever. And, you know, I have, I've thought about that. I didn't think about it very much when I was doing it. I just knew that this was the kind of music that I loved and that the expressiveness of the singing really captured me and that I had some kind of a, of a talent for it and, and some kind of a feel for it. But later on, I started to feel like, well, you know, I'm learning from this amazing tradition. Um, there are other people who, uh, you know, who came up in this tradition who never, who never got the credit or, or the money that they deserved in doing this. So, you know, what obligation do I have as someone who has learned so much from, from this, you know, community of musicians to give back to them or to pay homage to them. And, you know, I think, I think for me being able to, you know, it's funny, I, I don't want to say that this feels like an, I, you know, had an obligation to do it and I'm repaying an obligation, but I was able to produce a couple of records for my friends, the Holmes brothers, who are an amazing group and were, you know, 
mentors of mine and, and fabulous. And at the moment that they asked me to work with them, I had had this big success. So I felt like I was, you know, of course I wanted to do it and I loved them and I was super excited to do it. And they weren't doing me any, you know, it wasn't like they were doing me a big favor or I was doing them a big favor, but it did happen at a, at a moment where I did have a lot of attention. So when people asked me things or talked to me in interviews, I could say, oh, I'm doing this with the Holmes brothers. Have you heard about them? And I could talk them up. I felt like at least I can use this platform that I have to let people understand that in my life, the people who've taught me a lot coming from this blues community are these guys, the Holmes brothers, and you got to check them out because they're amazing. And we went on tour together. And when I did a, a gig opening for Bob Dylan, I had them come and be the band. So I really just kept trying to give credit where credit was due. I don't think that that makes me, you know, a super special person. I, I think it's just, that's kind of the very least that you can do to honor the, this community where this music comes from. Even beyond that, even day to day, you have this opportunity, you know, for people who, whether it's, you know, they get hooked from your big single or something else, they come in and you're able to sort of, oh, hey, here's this like, here's this music that you wouldn't have necessarily sought out yourself. Yeah. Or, and just to give credit to the people who've influenced you and, and, uh, you know, the amazing soul artists and Mavis Staples, Netta James and Otis Redding and Al Green. And, you know, people should know about these amazing artists. If they don't, then, and if I'm the person who tells them about it, great. You know, I think somebody came up to me at a gig once and said, you know, I, I, had heard of Ray Charles, but I'd never listened to him until I, until you talked about him in your song. And I was like, well, like I know him from the Pepsi commercial, but well, yeah, he's pretty good. Right. Yeah. I'm a big captain Beefheart fan and I'm, mm. I'm just, I'm, you know, there, there's like a couple of connections there. What is the, what's the Beefheart connection? Um, I'm just a fan and um, you know, I really like that record trout mask replica and I, I like how weird he is. And I, you know, I, I covered a song called Her Eyes or a Blue Million Miles, you know, before I even had a big record deal. Um, I don't know, just a fan. So uh, when we were trying to pull together some different loops to work with uh, in the songwriting process, you know, that was just a place that I wanted to go because I was like, oh, here's this Captain Beefheart CD that I have. Let's try that. You know, those, it's just super if for people who don't know, he's kind of like Tom Waits before Tom Waits, you know, he's got these super crunchy, you know, his production techniques, he's got these super crunchy grooves and really interesting feel. And so, um, yeah, so it, it seemed to work. <laughs> 